Welcome back to Portfolio Rescue. This is our show where we take questions from you, the viewers. Every week our inbox is full of questions from you. A lot of good ones. Sometimes we get them from the chat. We had a bunch of live people in the chat here today. Thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, remember, if you have a question, ask the compound show at gmail.com. Duncan, it's been a kind of a rough year for US stocks and bonds. So John, let's throw up the chart here just to show this is a year-to-date returns for the S&P 500 and the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index. Uh, S&P's down 6% or so. Bonds actually down worse than stocks right now. They're also down a little more than 6%. This is pretty rare. So I looked back until the 1920s. Like, when does this happen that stocks and bonds in the U.S. are down in the same year? It's happened four times in history since the late 1920s. 1931, 1941, 1969, and 2018, just barely. Bonds were down just a, just a smidge. Uh, I actually wrote a eulogy for the 60-40 portfolio back in 2019 because it's gotten killed every year since 2008, basically. Is the 60-40 dead? Is it dead? And I always say, if the 60-40 is dead, that means diversification is dead. So people say, all right, this year it's really dead, right? It's got to be dead. Well, my counterpoint to this is diversification you know, might not protect you over days, weeks, months, or even years, but long-term returns are the only ones that matter. And the long-term returns for a 60-40 portfolio have still been pretty good. I looked it up today, 60-40 portfolio in the U.S. over the last 10 years, up 10% per year, including this year. Pretty good. I'm, I'm sorry, but you don't get 10% a year for a decade and not expect to see something like this where you get a 5% drawdown in a few months. That's like how this works. There has to be the risk of a year like 2022 to get decent returns over the long haul. right? I think it just has to be this way. So I don't think that this year means the markets are broken. It, it means we're in kind of a strange environment. Interest rates are rising. At the same time, stocks are falling, and maybe right, rates are, stocks are falling because rates are rising. But I think this is just the way it has to be. Like You have to have this short-term risk to get the long-term gains of the long-term. That, that's how it works. Yeah, I mean, your chart that you shared the other day in an article was what a savings account is yielding 0.06% on average or something, yeah. Right, yeah. So unfortunately, with rates still being relatively low, uh, even in bonds, you're going to have to accept some volatility to earn returns over the long term. That's that's like the trade-off right now. All right, let's do a uh, do our first question here. Okay. So up first, we have a short and sweet one. Is there any way to prep for stagflation? Any actionable ideas? Duncan, do you know what stagflation is? Uh, it's like a bachelor party, right? Not well enough to explain it well. All right. Larry Summers uh, said this the other day of... Uh, social network fame. The Fed's current policy trajectory is likely to lead to stagflation with average unemployment and inflation both averaging over 5% over the next few years and ultimately a major recession. This is basically the 1970s scenario. Stagflation is when you have high inflation mixed with growth that doesn't go so much in the, in the U.S. economy, right? So you have, you have sort of uh, sputtering growth. It doesn't do that much. You have low growth and you have high inflation, right? Because most of the time, when you have high inflation, you have high economic growth. That's what's happening right now. A lot of people don't feel that way, but nominal growth last year in the U.S. economy before inflation was like 11%, right? So we had a booming economy, but we also had high inflation. Now, the worry is, okay, that inflation is going to get so high, it's going to impact growth and spending, and, if, and growth is going to come down, but inflation is still going to be there. So again, this is the 1970s. So this is a scenario. So honestly, the 70s are the only scenario we have here for an example. And I want to show some, some differences. First of all, let's look at the inflation in the 70s, John, this first chart. Throughout the 70s, the average inflation rate was a little over 7%. It also started the, the decade. It was already rising in the 1960s at like 5 or 6%. So it was already pretty high going in. Now let's look at the 10-year Treasury. This is the biggest difference between now and then. The 10-year Treasury averaged almost 8% in the 1970s. It got as low as 5 and about as high as 11. So rates were much, much higher back then 
than they are now. Let's look at the Fed funds rate next. This is the federal funds uh, short-term interest rate. You can see it got as low as 2.25% in the early 70s, got as high as 17.6% by the end as they were trying to stave off inflation. Uh, so interest rates were much higher. Inflation is about what it is right now, but it was like that for a decade, whereas we've been using it, we've been experiencing it for about a year. So the question is, how do we prepare for it? If we're thinking about your portfolio, the easy answer for back then was commodities. I, I think the, the GSCI index, which is like the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, was up like 20% per year. Oil was up more than 800% in the 70s. Gold actually rose more than 1,000%. Now, I think that has just as much to do with the fact that Nixon broke that link of turning gold into cash that, you know, he took that convertibility off the table in the early 1970s. I think that has as much to do with gold rising as did the commodities boom, but that certainly has something to do with it. So if you look at energy stocks since 2021, they're up 115%. So commodities, energy, if, if we had a stagflation, that would seem to be, that would seem to make sense. Um, now let's look at the, the earnings real quick from the 70s too. So this is, this is S&P 500 earnings in the 1970s. Up 160%, it was actually the second biggest uh, decade ever for earnings, so it was up 9.9% per year. So corporations did fantastic because guess what? Inflation means higher earnings, right? Obviously, on a nominal basis, when you take out the real, it's not quite as good because inflation was 7%. Well, let's look at the returns. The, the craziest thing about the 70s, so I looked at stocks, bonds, and cash. S&P 500, 10-year treasuries, and then cash is like three-month T-bills, which is basically, think about it as a money market account or a savings account, short-term treasuries. Stocks were up 6% per year. This is on a nominal basis before inflation. Bonds were up 5.4%. Cash was up 6.3% per year in the 70s. So holding your money in a savings account would have given you a better return than stocks or bonds in the 1970s. Obviously, that's because rates were much higher back then. You, what you were earning on cash and short-term T-bills was much higher. We don't have that now. So that's, that's the, the hardest part now is that back then you had the high inflation, but at least you had higher interest rates to help you in safe assets. We don't have that today. Like bond rates are still, they've been coming up, but they're still like 2%, right? So you don't have that cushion. That's, that's the biggest difference. Let's, let's show the value versus inflation one here, John. So what I did here is I looked at the outperformance of value versus growth stocks by decade. And then on the bottom there, you can see I plotted inflation. This might be a little confusing to people, but the idea is going from left to right. The higher the value is up and to the right, that means when inflation is high and value is doing well, value stocks. And on the alternative, alternatively, the other way, when inflation is lower in deflation and value is underperforming growth. So the 2010s are a prime example. Inflation was really, really low and growth outperformed the value in a, by a wide margin. You can see the one at the very top there in the 1970s and 1940s are the two best decades for value stocks outperforming growth stocks. Guess what those two decades have in common? It was the two highest inflation decades we've had on record, right? So if you look at just value and growth this year alone, now again, we're two and a half or three, two and a half, three months into the year, uh, the Vanguard value fund is up 1% this year. The Vanguard growth fund is down 12%. Vanguard small cap value is down 2%. The Vanguard small cap growth fund is down 13%. So my takeaway from all this is that diversification probably matters more than ever when you have these changing economic environments like this, right? In the 2010s, everyone just said, why don't I just own all tech stocks? And that's going to make my life easy. Tech stocks are going to crush now because growth is not doing as well because inflation is higher. That favors value stocks. So if we did have a period where growth came in a little bit, but inflation stayed high, you would expect that much broader diversification would help you 
than being narrowly focused on any one sector. And then obviously, if, if you had all your money in commodities and inflation continues to stay high, you'd probably do okay. But that's the idea. I think diversification now matters more than it ever has. Yeah, it's a huge shift too to go from like just caring about revenue growth and things like that to you know commodities, right? Like, how do you how do you gauge how do it you is, gauge is, something like that? It is bizarre because we've gone from this shift from digital is the only thing that matters and software and metaverse to oh, I forgot real world stuff actually matters. Commodities, this, these real inputs, and then supply chains and all this stuff that moving stuff around that stuff still matters. The physical world still matters, and I think that this last eighteen months or so has been a pretty good reminder of that. Yeah, definitely. But I still stagflation. It's a scary sounding word, right? Very you hear scary. that? Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't like global warming. Actually, that that's like the worst PR campaign of all time because it sounds nice. Yeah. Like stagflation should have been called is, climate catastrophe or something. Yeah. yeah, something bad. But yeah, stagflation does not sound good, and it's not great either. So, all right, let's do the next one. Okay. Up next, we have, how do you find a balance between having a spider web of accounts for every purpose, house down payment fund, savings, living, giving, emergency fund, et cetera, and having everything go into one checking account with monthly ACHs to the final destinations? Is there a specific system that you suggest to start with when it comes to automating your finances? I could use this one. I feel like I have like way too many accounts. <laughs> All right. I, yeah, I think that that's a problem for everyone because there are so many, it's so much easier to have accounts these days because there's all these different investing platforms and things to do. So people tend to dabble. John, put up the little chart here of my, my system that I created a couple years ago. I, I showed this in a blog post a while ago. Uh, these is, I do use my checking account as the hub. The only thing that comes off the top is 401k. My wife had a 403b plan. That would go off right before you even see it. And that makes it easier, I think. But the other stuff, it, it's all automated and the checking account acts as the big hub. And that's where all the, the different stuff comes out of. I, I don't know if it really matters all that much. It depends how much you can automate. And the great thing about these different accounts these days is that you have the ability to set this stuff on autopilot. Um, but I, th I think the places that you start are things like taking your credit card balance and paying it off in full each month. You can, you can set that an automatic checkbox. I'm going to pay it off in full each month so you're not paying interest and, and extra stuff on there. Uh, I think the bill pay automatically is easy, so that's either through the bank or recurring payments to the companies. So... Hopefully, you can do that for your mortgage or rent, utilities, subscriptions, car payments, insurance, phone, cable, all that stuff. For me, that's all on autopilot. I never want to think about it. It's great because that means you don't pay interest to credit cards, which is really high and can just punch you in the face. Uh, you don't have to deal with late payments and overdrafts and all this stuff. Yeah, talk about interest rates that never change. You know, like 29.9% yes. yeah. APR on a credit card or, yeah. Yes, I, I saw a news story the other day saying, you know, the Fed's raising rates, this is going to impact credit cards. It's like, guess what? Rates came down, credit card rates never came down. Yeah. Those ones are set in stone, basically. Yeah, they don't. Uh, the other thing, I have automated charitable contributions. We're going to talk about th those a little bit later today, I know, but I mentioned this on the Compounded Friends a few months ago, but uh, charities love it when you, you have this set up on autopilot so they can plan their budgets out a little better. Uh, I also think that one of the things you can do automatically is save for infrequent purchases that you know will happen on occasion, right? So things like car repairs, you know they're going to happen at some point. You don't know when, you don't really know the magnitude. So you can set up an automatic uh, deposit from your checking account to go into a online savings that for 50 bucks a month to cover a car payment, that's, that car repair payments, you know, know it's going to happen. Um, I think a lot of it just depends like how psychologically important it is for you to have that one hub versus having a bunch of different accounts and putting them together using something like Mint. Um, I just think the the automation thing is is key because having to worry about all that and write a check for everything 
or track down and pay each bill each month, it, it's going to be easy to forget and miss some of those. Uh, so, so something as simple for, for us is, I mentioned before, I think my wife had like a $50 coming right out of her paycheck to a Disney fund. and She set it up like three years in advance because she knew we were going to be going. Uh, I do think the, the great thing about a 401k or 403b, like a workplace retirement account, is that it never hits your, your account in the first place. You never have to see that money hitting your account and then see it go back out. I think for some people that like loss aversion type of thing, seeing the money leave is harder. So the fact that you never see it, I think that makes sense. But the other thing is I, I treat savings like a bill payment. So if it's the 529 for my kids or for some people it's an HSA or the 401k, I think if you treat that like a bill payment and assume it's just not going to be there, that helps you figure out your spending on the back end a little easier and you just kind of let that stuff go and don't touch it. And as long as it's automatic, it, it, it makes it easier to not worry about it. And you think, okay, this is a bill. It's going to be paid each month. I'm not having to worry about it. At what point do you think Disney will allow people to uh, to pull money out before taxes you know, on their uh, <laughs> their paychecks? I, I, I can't believe they haven't gotten to the point where people are are fighting back. It's it's still the busiest place on earth, and uh, yeah, their their inflation is got to be double the average for the country easily. Yeah, seems like it based on uh, yeah we on Animal Spirits you guys discussed that. Pretty and one crazy. more thing, I think when you're if you, once you do automate all this stuff, it probably makes sense to at least check it like once a year. Because you could have subscriptions you're paying for uh, magazines or gyms or streaming services that you don't use anymore. So I think it makes, and for, for them, that's perfect. That's recurring revenue. That's what they hope for, right? I, I have a Planet Fitness gym by me, and it's 10 bucks a month. And I always think, how in the hell does this business model work? And oh, yeah, it works because people sign up for it. It's automatically taken from their checking account. And then a lot of them just never go. And it just right. takes that out all the time. So it, it makes sense to at least review this stuff, I'd say, on an annual basis. Cool. Good advice. All right, let's do another one. Okay, question three is, as a single 34-year-old male with about $500,000 in net worth, should I be looking into establishing a living trust? I have no idea what this means, so I'm looking forward to, to this one. Uh, I have no kids or wife and no major concerns of passing on my wealth other than the beneficiaries assigned to my accounts. If I were to start one, what should I expect to pay for a living trust in California or just in general? Duncan, Portfolio Rescue is great for you because I feel like at least once a week there's a question where you say, I don't know what this is. Yeah. Right? It's All perfect. the time. So I am not a trust expert, uh, but we do have a trust expert on our team here. Let's bring Taylor Hollis in. She is one of the newest members of Rituals Wealth Management. Hey, Taylor. A, an advisor that came to us from Nashville. Taylor has worked with trust in her career. So first of all, before we get into, like, does this person really need one, tell us what is a trust, uh, what are some of the reasons that someone would look to have one, and what the benefits are. Yeah. So I think trust a lot of times get kind of a smoke and mirrors reputation. Um, so I'll kind of boil it down. I think in simplest terms, I like to think of a trust as a box. So it's literally just a separate entity that you can put assets in. Um, and sometimes it's its own separate um, tax reporting entity. Sometimes it's files back to your own personal tax return. In the case of a living trust that they're asking about in the question, um, that's also known as a revocable trust, which is essentially just an extension of yourself. So as long as you are serving as the trustee of your revocable or living trust, um, then it'll flow through back to your tax return. And it's it's one entity as far as the IRS and the government's concerned. So what is the protection you're looking for by setting up a trust? Like, what are you trying to protect it, your money from? So... Uh, Talking about a revocable trust, which is what his question is, or a living trust, is kind of different than talking about an irrevocable trust. Um, if you're setting up an irrevocable trust, you're typically trying to protect from um, creditors, 
um, potentially future ex-spouses, um, just future kind of family concerns that might be on the horizon. Um, but with a revocable trust that he's asking about, I think the the main benefits to setting that up are that you, when you pass away, um, you bypass probate. So probate is um, the the term for um, the, the court proceedings that your estate has to go through when you die. So when you pass away, you have all your assets, investment accounts, maybe a house, those kinds of things. And it um, under normal circumstances, has to go through this probate process through a court. Um, and so, but by setting up a revocable or living trust, that is totally bypassed and everything goes according right. to how you've designated and designated it in the trust document. It's not as messy, right? Not as messy. Um, not as messy, not as much of a burden on your um, family members that are likely settling your estate. Um, and another main benefit to setting up a revocable trust um, is privacy. That's something a lot of people like about it. Um, whether it's if, if you buy a home and you put it in the name of the trust, not everyone can see you know, that John Smith bought this house. It might just be the Smith Living Trust and they don't know exactly who it was. Um, it's also, from a privacy standpoint, beneficial for your heirs who's inheriting your assets because maybe you don't want um, everyone to know that your son or daughter inherited, you know, a million dollars um, when you passed away. And if 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 your estate goes through probate through a will, that's all public record. So anyone can can walk up to the courthouse and look up wills and look up um, so how, probate proceedings. So how about this example where we have a 34-year-old single male, no kids? Because uh, yeah. I've heard examples in the past of like life insurance, and I've had friends who were single at the time, and they said, hey, someone's trying to get me to buy life insurance. And I said, you're, you're single. What does it matter? Does that same apply for a trust? Or do you think there are cases where this makes sense to pass it along, just make it easier and pass it along if something should happen to them? Yeah, I, I don't think in, in this particular case it's absolutely necessary. Um, but I do think that, you know, if it's something that they're thinking about, setting it up now will only make their life easier in the future. So, you know, he mentioned he doesn't own any real estate. Um, but when the time comes, if, you know, you're per planning on purchasing a house, you already have that revocable trust set up and you can just buy the house in the name of the trust instead of having to, you know, quick claim the deed later on and, and so on and so forth. So um, it still gives you full control over your assets, even though you don't have kids. Um, but, you know, it still would give you control to say who those assets go to if, you know, something untimely happened um, at such a young age. So I, again, I don't think it's absolutely necessary, but you're definitely not going to, to harm anything by setting it up now and just having it in place for, for future. Are, are trusts set up in like old English in the 1700s? Because I feel like revocable and irrevocable are words that I would stumble over all the time and I would have a hard time spelling every time I had to do it. Yes, yes. And they sound so much alike that it's easy to uh, misunderstand. I think they actually date back to like the medieval ages, but that's that's for a different episode. It, it seems intentionally confusing. But yes. Yeah. All right, let's do another one. Okay. So last but not least, we have, I'd appreciate some insight on donor-advised funds or DAFs. Considering all of the donations going to the crisis right now, this seems like a good opportunity to go over what they are and the pros and cons. I'm looking to donate 50 to 100 bucks a month towards a charity, but first I wanted to learn about DAFs. I think this is the second question we've gotten on this in as many weeks, which is. is good to see. People are trying to give back and figure out ways to do it. So first of all, Taylor, we'll go over like what is a donor-advised fund, when it makes sense, and then what are some of the, the potential benefits and when it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So donor advised fund, um, actually kind of similar 
to a trust is a separate entity. So it's a, a charitable giving vehicle that individuals or married couples um, can set up to fund their charitable intentions out of. Um, some people might be familiar with foundations. Um, those are kind of on a typically a, a grander scale. Um, donor advised funds, I like to think of as just a simplified foundation. Um, and I think they, they really came about um, in popularity after the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed because that um, significantly increased the standard deduction amount, and which was, is good for a lot of folks, but it raised the threshold of charitable donations um, and, and their benefit to you from a tax standpoint. So donor advised funds became very popular out of that because you have the ability to um, what I call bunch donations. So you're, you're essentially pre-funding your charitable giving. So instead of giving away $10,000 each year, because that doesn't, there's not a huge benefit to you from a tax standpoint of that because you're you're still under that standard deduction but you can instead one year decide to put fifty thousand dollars call it um into a donor advised fund you get a much more significant tax deduction by doing that and you you've essentially pre-funded all your future charitable gifting so then going forward you can gift charitably out of this donor advised fund and it seems like these are the type of funds too where people will donate uh, a mutual fund or a stock or something like that, right? Where it's a lot of times right. you're donating securities into these things. How does that work? Right, right. So if you have, um, you know, if you own securities with a very low cost basis, a lot of times there's a um, kind of double tax advantage to donating that to your donor advised fund because A, you get the deduction um, for the charitable gift, but also you're not having to recognize those gains on your, your personal return, right? So you're avoiding gains and getting a deduction at the same time. So a lot of times those appreciated securities are a great option to put into the DAF. What do we think, Duncan? You got it now? I think so. I'm, uh, I'm seeing a lot of people didn't know what they are, so it makes me feel better that, that you know, yeah, no, I just it, learned it is, about these last week. So It is one of these things that seems like this secret little thing if you've never heard about it. But yeah. again, I think it's a great thing people are thinking about more intelligent ways to give, and this seems like one that makes a lot of sense for people, especially if you have some securities that you're willing to donate, right? Right, right. And I like to, it's a good idea to, to be strategic about it. So if you have a, a big income year, let's say you sell, a, you know, investment property, or you just make a lot of money one year, it's a great option to try to, to look at funding a DAF in that same year to help offset some of that income from a tax standpoint. And this is like we talked about with Bill last week, Duncan, right? Like when does it make sense to have a tax advisor or someone that's looking this stuff over for you when you don't know this stuff and you need to right. have a little help. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this kind of exactly. stuff, it seems yeah so uh, so complicated, pretty hard to do on your own. <laughs> right. Okay. Yep. I think that's all the questions for this week. Thanks to Taylor. Yep. Taylor? Thanks, yeah, thanks for having Taylor. me. Welcome to Ridholtz. Uh, you've been here for four weeks now. Four weeks. Yep, and already on Portfolio Rescue. Good here job. Here we are. Everyone keep those <laughs> questions and comments coming. We have a new Compound and Friends tomorrow going up, right, Duncan? Yes, we have uh, Nick Colas on. So. Oh, very good from DataTrek. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His, his his research is always good. We'll have a new Animal Spirits. Uh, we have a new one coming Saturday, discussing some NFTs that Duncan actually helped us create, which are pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it's also going to be a charitable component there. Uh, we'll have a new one Monday and Wednesday as well. And then what are your thoughts on Tuesday? So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. As always, uh, send us your questions. Askthecompoundshow at gmail.com, and we will see you next week. Thanks, everyone. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. 
Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com to get started with us today.